day so big But Easter loves a black man like Thanksgiving loves a white man I think it even loves a wig Easter, won't you please, sir Tell me what's the big deal The black men are dancing and the women are prancing Are cooking up the afternoon meal Take grandma by the hand, you can drop that frying pan And throw her into that big old fort We're heading to the steeple, there's a lot of black people Shouting hallelujah, praise the Lord Morgan Freeman to Wesley Snipes To everyone in the color purple Easter loves them all from Sam Jackson to RuPaul It even loves that freaking Urkel So gather around cause Easter's coming to town Grab a basketball and learn to play Buy a pair of Chuck Taylors you'll turn into a player Cause Easter damn sure loves the NBA Easter, won't you please, sir, tell me what's the big deal? The black men are dancing and the women are prancing, cooking up the afternoon meal. Take grandma by the hand, you can drop that frying pan and throw her in that big old board. Heading to the steeple, there's a lot of black people shouting, hallelujah, praise the Lord. 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 And that's where it's supposed to end, but thank you very much. And thanks to David Robinson. Whoa, 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 whoa. You mean that's it? That's it. That's it? That's it. Whoa, 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 we need to get Followell in here for a grade. <laughs> you want me to sing Thanksgiving Loves a White Man? Because that... Because that sucked. That was terrible. F. F, yes, F. Where's Followell? Minus. Okay, I'm not singing. Followell tells me that was an F. You want me to sing Thanksgiving Loves a White Man? You need to redeem yourself, young man. All right, this I also wrote for my wife. <laughs> I really do love you, honey. I don't know where you are, but I love you. Um, She's got her shirt off in the back somewhere. What's up? Woohoo! Oh great, three chords. Pocahontas was an Indian. She liked gravy by the ton. White men said they slept in her bed. They got giblets stuck in their tongues. Pocahontas was an Indian. She liked white men by the score. Legend says she was on the pill and her nickname was Fat Engine Whore. Thanksgiving loves a white man. The white man loves him back. We eat and watch football and head to the bathroom and hate him for our afternoon nap. 
Thanksgiving loves a white man. White man loves it bad. Get under your skin, Granny. That's when you grab her by the nape of the neck and you beat her with a rolling pin. Late at night when we're frisky, our wife she has a sore back. We grab a bottle of Cuervo and a bottle of gin and take our chances with cousin Mac. Thanksgiving loves a white man. Loves a white man if a white man loves a bad Eating watch football and head to the bathroom and take our afternoon crap. Now the day is nearly over. I look at the setting sun. Wish Pocahontas was here right now so I could have a little engine fun. She would be my little squad I would be your man And when I was finished with that engine whore I would smack her with a frying pan Thanksgiving loves a white man White man loves it bad We even watch get your choice today, Corby. All right. A choice of a funny Benny Rooster 28 baseball story as relayed to us on the game today by Eric Nadell. Or the story of knights in white satin. I mean, it's going to be either classic rock or baseball with you, so <laughs> flip a coin. Since I cribbed the poem from knights in white satin and used it in a junior English class and got an A as a piece of original uh, original composition, let's go with that. Let's go with Knights in White Satin. You plagiarized Knights in White Satin? Word for word, breathe deep, the gathering gloom, watch lights fade from every room, the whole damn thing. And they were like, wow, that's really good. A. And it was a bit that we were all in on. All, me and all my friends, I'm like, do you think? It was a woman. This like, There's no way she's going to know what this is. Turned it in, A. And she didn't know what it was, huh? No. 
We're laughing. All right, for those who don't know Knights in White Satin. What did your hang on a second? What did your other buddies pick? Like you shook me all night long? <laughs> no, we had we had a late night discussion, probably while the Moody Blues were on, of whether or not you could take that poem in there and turn it in as an original piece and if anyone would know. Well, had you gotten like, busted, you would have gotten a lot of trouble. Right? Probably. Eh, whatever. All right. We're back to you, Mike. All right. For those who may not know, Nights in White Satin is a song by the Moody Blues. Being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. Or I guess they were the other night. And starting to get um, a good bit of buzz around them once again on account of this. Uh, we'll listen to a little bit of this if you don't uh, mind here. Nights in white satin. Is this music? Never reaching the end. Barely. Letters I've written. Never meaning to send. I don't know if this is their biggest hit, but it's certainly one of them. This, Ride My Seesaw, it's another one that's big. Question? Question. Yeah, question. That's another big one for them. They were massive in the late 60s and early 70s. Not only were they massive, they were cosmic. And when they told us to breathe deep... We bought in. Right. Because they clearly knew something we did not. And they knew this because they were Brits and they all lived in castles. Right. And stuff. And probably a couple of them had, had experience with dragons. <laughs> <laughs> this was part of an album, Days of Future Past. And by the time... Even the dumb title of the record is Days of Future Past. Yes. It was all cosmic. Yeah. It was all much, much higher level than what we used to get on the radio over here. And it uh, it grabbed. You bought in, didn't you? We bought in, man. We bought in seriously. You bought in because this was late night music. That too. <laughs> Nothing screams of a big weed J-O than listening to the Moody Blues at 2.30 in the morning. Boy, you got that right. You got that right. And that happened on more occasions than I could possibly (laughs) count. (laughs) But the Moody Blues were a little bit different from all the other Brit bands of the time because most of the Brit bands were trying to make the segue... From being an American R&B knockoff into something else, into finding their own way. And um, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, some others had proven to be quite successful at this. The Moody Blues took a little bit of a different path. Instead of of finding their own way into something a little bit more pop-oriented like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones did... 
they got a hold of a Mellotron. Now, a Mellotron is a keyboard instrument which duplicates the sounds of strings by using tape loops. It's a very big, very expensive. Cumbersome. Very still? Cum- yes, still. Really? As far as I know, very cumbersome instrument, which is also very fragile. And if you take it out on the road, you're going to have to have... You need a Mellotron guy. Yeah, you you need more than one Mellotron guy because it takes more than one just to move the thing around. I'm talking about a guy to fix the damn thing. Yeah, and a tech, too. John Paul Jones used it a lot. Yeah, so did the Beatles. But the mm-hmm. Moody Blues were the ones that popularized it. And in all of their albums, you could hear the Mellotron back there playing parts that would normally have been done by keyboards, horns, things like that. But it gave them their... Their lush, orchestral, spacey yeah. sound that you hear in this. And Nights in White Satin was part of the Days of Future Past album. Days of Future Past, what it did was it, was it tracked a day in the life of the average spare guy. The first part of it started off with morning. And then they got into afternoon. And the song from that was Tuesday Afternoon, which was, Ooh, that was a big one. one of the Moody Blues' big hits. And then they went into Evening and then Night, where, which is where you heard Breathe Deep and Nights so in wait, White Satin. Nights is not K-N-I? It's no. N-I? No, it's N-I. I always thought it was K-N-I. It is not K-N-I. Didn't, I mean, that makes sense. Nights in White Satin. Not Nights, like the Evening in White Satin. You might think that. I didn't smoke enough. But Justin Hayward. Or you smoked too much. (laughs) Nah, not enough. You couldn't smoke too much for this. (laughs) Justin Hayward is the Moody Blues guitar player, singer, songwriter. By the way. Lynchpin. I feel that Justin, that name was ahead of its time. There couldn't have been a lot of Justins that were born in 1942 or whatever. (laughs) Right? That doesn't sound like a name that I thought that's Maybe more a, it's a British thing. Maybe it is. I only knew a couple. Him and the noted Cajun comic Justin Wilson from back <laughs> in the day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was the guy who wrote all their stuff. He was the singer. And he says he got the inspiration for Nights in White Satin because at the end of a relationship corby when love had gone bad for him mm-hmm. right before that the lady that he had parted ways with had given him a set of white satin sheets for what she thought would be their love bed love, love bed, bed. <laughs> is that an add on for when you buy the love toilet or the love sling mm-hmm. or the love sling? sack remember that, those things yeah those big bean bags? Yeah, we yeah. had one up here. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> the ticket. Starting to create a little backlog here of notable deaths. So we'd best get a few out of the way today and discuss the passing of some of these notable people and their time on the planet. Who do you want to start with? Um, you pick. They're all pretty equal in my eyes. Let's start with Arlie Ermey. Okay. Arlie Ermey, uh, 
for me at least, it's one thing and one thing only. Oh, but what a thing that is. And, of course, it is Full Metal Jacket, released 31 years ago, in which he played Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. And, to be honest with you, I'm shocked that the guy didn't win an Academy Award for that, for Best Supporting Actor. He didn't make it that far. Too, not long enough in the movie, you mean? Yeah, he was only in the movie for like 45 minutes. Half of it. Remember, the weird part about, if you haven't seen that movie, man, Full Metal Jacket is, for me, for my money, that is like the seminal Vietnam movie. It's pretty great. It's two separate films. It is. And he was in the first part. Right. Where they're training. And, uh... He was the drill instructor. The minute he appeared on screen, I mean, that was right at the beginning of the movie when they're in boot camp. Dude, it is some of the most tense. Go back and watch that, too, because... When he is sitting there, walking around there, berating all of the privates, it is, it, it, it's, you can't believe that, it's one take, first off. And for, you know, for those who know about Stanley Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick's, Kubrick's films were notorious for taking forever because he is one of these guys that wanted to shoot things a million different times to get to find perfection. And Arlie Ermey was nothing more than a consultant on that film. And Kubrick liked him so much and the way that he was presenting these scenes mm-hmm. that he was like, do you think you could do this? And he's like, you're damn right. Yeah, sure. And you talk about a movie being completely different if this guy's not in it. I mean, th- this is the this is why these... Folks are stereotyped the way they are because of that role right there. Yeah. He was not acting either. No, because he was a drill instructor during the Vietnam War uh, for the Marines. And he enlisted in the Marines right after he got out of high school. He's six years older than me, so do the math there. Mm -hmm. And... His goal was to be a career military guy. He intended to spend decades in there. And a lot of what he used was stuff that he used in real boot camp when he was, you know, a drill instructor during the Vietnam War. And he says that it was terrifying to those actors. My objective was to intimidate them. And he did. A lot of it was impromptu as well. Um, you know, he just went off on these guys. My favorite scene wasn't part of the uh, the five minute opening in Full Metal Jacket, in which he is just you can't take your eyes off of him. Mm-hmm. It's haunting. But a little bit later on, Matthew Modine is the lead character in the movie, and Matthew Modine um, he walks in and he's waking everybody up. He's banging on the trash can, and you know the privates are jumping out of bed, and he wanders over to Matthew Modine and starts talking to him about. The Virgin Mary. And this is what comes of it. Today is Sunday. Divine worship at 0800. Get your bunks made and get your uniforms on. Police call will commence in two minutes. Private Cowboy, Private Joker. Sir, yes, sir. Sir, yes, sir. As soon as you finish your bunks, I want you two turds to clean the head. Sir, yes, sir. I want that head so sanitary and squared away that the Virgin Mary herself would be proud to go in there and take a dump. Sir, yes, sir. Private Joker, do you believe in the Virgin Mary? Sir, no, sir. Well, Private Joker, 
don't believe I heard you correctly. Sir, the private said no, sir, sir. Why, you little maggot, you make me want to vomit. You give communists either, and you had best sound off that you love the Virgin Mary, or I'm going to stomp your guts out. Now, you do love the Virgin Mary, don't you? Sir, negative, sir! Private Joker, are you trying to offend me? Sir, negative, sir! Sir, the private believes that any answer he gives will be wrong, and the senior drill instructor will beat him harder if he reverses himself, sir! Who's your squad leader, scumbag? Sir, the private squad leader is Private Snowball, sir! Private Snowball! promoted to squad leader. Sir, aye, aye, sir! Yes, the pair's come back. Sir, aye, aye, sir! Private Pyle. Sir, Private Pyle reporting his orders, sir! Private Pyle, from now on, Private Joker is your new squad leader, and you will bunk with him. He'll teach you everything. He'll teach you how to pee. Sir, yes, sir! Private Joker is silly and he's ignorant, but he's got guts, and guts is enough. Now you ladies, carry on. Sir, aye, sir! Away he goes, man. <sighs> you two turds. I want it so spotless that the Virgin Mary herself would be proud to take a dump. Proud. <laughs> he reprised that role in about a million yeah. different things, and he, you know he's been in The Simpsons. He's been in tons of stuff trying to recreate that, and I, you know he was on with Bob and Dan a handful of times too mm-hmm. when he was doing the the mail call show. Was that on the History Channel or Discovery or something? I mean, the guy just, he made a living off of that character. Yeah. Plain and simple. And he wasn't even acting. No. No, he wasn't. Well, you know what, though? Still, you are acting. There is There are cameras in front of you. Those people aren't actual uh, enlisted men. Um, you, I see what you're saying, but what I'm saying is he was getting paid for doing something that... Came that, natural. Yeah, that came natural to him. Right. Uh, he was also in Seven. He was Sarge, of course, in uh, Toy Story. He was in Saving Silverman. Very funny movie. I'm sorry, but there's only one Sarge in my television history. Who? Six Feet Under. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Hard-charging Sarge. Oh, man. Am I wrong? I love you, man. <laughs> <laughs> How did he die? Arlie? He was only 74. He's got Str- age. Stress, maybe. Yeah, but just being so uptight. He got a Golden Globe nom for Full Metal Jacket, and man, I'm sorry. Ah, here we have a cause. Complications of. Don't say frequent diarrhea, pneumonia, cancer, pneumonia. Oh my God! In Santa Monica, too young. In the hospital at the age of seventy-four. That's too young for pneumonia. Yeah, and he's yeah. Not like he looked he's, like he was in shape. Yeah. And... I, I will tell you, I was shocked when I heard about this. Yeah, I was shocked that he was only seventy-four. You know what? You go back and you look at that. So he was forty-four. Forty-four doing Full Metal Jacket, and at the time, if you would ask me how old he was, I would have said sixty-something. Same. People just looked older. <laughs> Life was hard back then, Corby. Yeah, I guess so. I'm beginning to believe you a little bit more. I believe you full on, homie. But uh, yeah, man, if you have not seen Full Metal Jacket, do it. It is so worth it. And that scene when uh, when he ends up getting shot and killed is Ugh. some of the most tense cinema mm. ever. Mm. Hard to watch. Was that in the theater for you? 
No, it wasn't. Oh, really? Yeah. Man, I lived was... it, man. <laughs> the ticket. A lot of big ones out there. We got a little bit of a backlog here, so let's knock out a couple today if we can. I imagine that this guy means a lot more to me and Danny and Ty than uh, you, Michael, and Mino as well, and that is Harry Anderson. Harry Anderson, am I right? He probably doesn't mean that much to you, does he? Know the name. Know he was on night court. Yes. Know he was very well thought of, but as far as knowing much about that show or knowing much about what he did can't help you night court was incredibly popular at a time when it was going up against some heavy heavy hitters in the world of 80 sitcoms mm-hmm. you know you had cheers and the cosby show and golden girls and shows that everybody was talking about and this was a nice companion piece to all of them he starred as harry stone in night court uh for nine seasons from 83 to 92 84 to 93 something like that he was nominated for three consecutive Emmys, and there was a really good cast, too. Uh, it kind of launched the career of John Larroquette, I do believe. I don't remember John Larroquette being in much before that. Uh, Marky Post. It seems like I'd seen him in stuff before that. Boy, Marky Post, my word. Man, she was so hot. Something else back in the day. I remember Harry well before Night Court. Do you? I remember him from Cheers. I remember him from Johnny Carson. I remember him from Saturday Night Live. He was a magician. Yes, that, that was, was his, his bit. Yeah, he was like a comedic magician. So what happened was, so Cheers started a couple of years prior to Night Court, and he had a recurring role in the early days of Cheers That's right. as Harry the Hat. That's right. And he was a grifter. And he would show up at the bar and do these tricks and you know, kind of got at odds with Sam a couple of times and... Because he's kind of a thief as well, I believe, and and but he impressed. He's a con man. Yeah, he impressed the powers that be over at NBC with that role as Harry the Hat enough to get his own show, which tells you all you need to know. The guy was super talented, but yeah, that's, he was nothing more than a street magician mm-hmm. growing up. He spent a lot of time in Austin, um, started out in, on the West Coast, and just roamed the streets doing magic tricks. I mean, this guy was low, low level, mm-hmm. and then had a chance encounter with a guy in Austin, actually, that kind of changed his life. Um, a, it was a juggler named Turk Pipkin, <laughs> and then they went and traveled across the United States together, and then when Han- Anderson said, I want to go to Hollywood, Pipkin followed him, and there they went, and yeah, he was on SNL a bunch of times in the 80s. He hosted it in the middle of night court. And, you know, Night Court, again, was super, super popular show. He was in his 30s when that show was on, and it it ended in the early 90s. He did another show on CBS called Dave's World, which was about a five-year run, I believe, and I barely remember that show. But I don't remember that show. I don't remember that either. Yeah. It had a four- or five-year run, and then after that, he moved to New Orleans, and that was really it. Married a couple of times, and then just kind of did his own thing. I think he saved his money up and wasn't doing much. But my thing is, what did he die of? He was only 65. He was found dead early in his home. Oh, he was in Asheville, North Carolina. 
They did not specify the cause, but said foul play was not suspected. His friend, Turk Pipkin, said that he had been hospitalized with the flu a few months ago and that he kind of was still gimpy, but nothing bad. Not like deathly or anything. But he was huge, man. He's been living in Ash. He had been living in Asheville since '06. Okay, maybe that, I think he was in New Orleans before that. He then. was okay, and no cause. <sighs> I'm sure it's flu related. If Turk Pipkin is telling the truth, I wonder if Night Court. If you went back and watched Night Court, if I would make it through a couple episodes and be like, you know what, it holds up, or if I'd be like, oh my god, I think Larroquette would hold up. He was always pretty damn funny. Would Bull hold up? I don't know if Bull would make it. In 02, when he was living with his uh, second wife, Elizabeth, they opened a magic shop in the French Quarter. Oh, really? I wonder yeah. if it's still there. I don't know. Why don't you ask your mom? I love that show, though. Was that the weekly for you guys? Night Court? Yeah. F yeah. Yeah. For sure. I loved him before Night Court, so when I heard that he was getting his own series, I was very excited. It's a good show. Good concept. Well, Harry Anderson checks out at the age of 65. Stay Mm. hard, Harry. We lost a giant in the film industry. A man who won multiple Academy Awards. And for all intents and purposes, I would say an incredibly underrated Academy Award winner as well. And that is the great Milos Forman. Now, are you aware of Milos Forman? This is a name that I've heard. I can't really place it with anything, but I know I've seen some of his work. Would it shock and awe you to learn that he was the director of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? That's probably where I heard it. Milos uh, took the helm of Cuckoo's Nest. And by the way, if you have not seen this one, you need to. For my money, when it comes to 70s films, and I'm kind of right there with Bob that the 70s film genre is a little bit overrated. A lot of these times, these movies are way too long. They just stretch them out. They always have these huge casts and all that. But... One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was not one of those movies. And it starred the great Jack Nicholson uh, as Randall R.P. McMurphy. Mc, Mc, what was his name? McMurphy. McMurphy, McMurphy or something like that. Yeah, McMurphy. Something like that. And, you know, a dude that's having some problems checks into a, or actually he's committed, into a mental facility. And there he meets this crew of... The amount of people that are in this thing that you've seen before but you hadn't seen up until that point is pretty stunning, um, including the great Danny DeVito, uh, who's got a really funny role in it. All these guys have funny roles. Christopher Lloyd uh, was great in it. It's an incredible movie. Very sad, mm-hmm. uh, but so well done. And Milos is the guy that was on top of this. And funny story, Milos, when he was casting... Uh, and Michael Douglas was the producer of this movie. Michael Douglas, very early on, took the producer reins of a lot of just giant movies when he was in his early 30s, late 20s. Obviously, nepotism played a part in that, but still. Um, Michael Douglas told the story I, I saw one time where Milos was adamant about Burt Reynolds having that role. Really? Yes. 
And for whatever reason, he didn't get it. Then they wanted Gene Hackman. Uh, then they wanted Marlon Brando. And finally, they they settled on Nicholson, who had just done five easy pieces and the last detail. Mm-hmm. But Nicholson was not known as this crazy, which is so weird. In the mid-'70s, Jack Nicholson hadn't become Nicholson yet. He was kind of known as a, an art house guy. And he certainly wasn't known as this crazy, over-the-top type dude that could play an insane person. Yeah, and that, that movie took him into the mainstream. It totally did. It totally did. 